Okay, let me read what we're doing with, in the catechism. I'm saying the question, and if you just give the answer, and then we'll make some comments on it. How are we made to share in the redemption purchased by Christ? We are made to share redemption purchased by Christ by the effective application of it to us by His Holy Spirit. Okay. Um, says he this. First thing on that that's very, very straightforward. Can we go on to the next one, Stephen, actually? Yeah. Christ purchased redemption for us. Hugely, hugely, hugely important. Purchased is very simple. Christ bought redemption for us. It cost him. It cost him enormously. We know what it cost him. It cost him his life. It cost him his blood. It cost him coming down to earth and living in poverty and so on. That's when we looked a couple of weeks back at the humiliation of Christ. That's what it cost him. Hebrews 9 verse 12, that verse says, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Ephesians 1 verse 7, should be up there as well, yep, uh, in whom we have redemption through his blood. Now, the whole of the Bible, the whole of the New Testament is geared towards that. It is that the whole story of the gospel is that Jesus has bought, redeemed something. Now, again, let me just simply state what redemption is. In a sense, you know what it is. The, the analogy that's used or the illustration that's used, the language that's used in the New Testament is from slavery. That if you're a slave and you were redeemed, you were, your freedom was bought. We might use it. Um, not many of you will probably go to a pawnbroker's or even know what a pawnbroker's is. But if you found yourself that your house, there was, you, you owed a lot of money on your mortgage or you had to give up something and uh, you needed to buy it back. Now, there's a huge amount in that. We're not going to go into it all, but it's, it's just so important because a lot of people don't think they need redeemed. They don't think that they're enslaved. What are we redeemed from? We're redeemed from sin, from its power, from its dominion, from its punishment. And what are we redeemed for? We're redeemed for Christ and redeemed for His kingdom. 1 Peter 1, 4 into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you. Now, we're not going to go into any great detail with this because we've been looking at this before and we'll come back to this again. But if you are not a Christian, it's to, you've got to try and grasp this, the huge significance that you need redeemed. And if we are a Christian, we, we need to realize what that means. We sang that song, I've been accepted. It is... Uh, one of the greatest ideas that we can have that we've been accepted by God. When I first became a Christian, I learned a song. I'm not going to sing it to you because I'm not a great singer, but I learned a song saying, I've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, saved by grace, and I know I am. It's very straightforward, a very simple song. But for me, it was just one of the most wonderful things possible. Okay, Here's the next question we come on to. Again, I'll ask the question. You give the answer, please. How does the Spirit apply to us the redemption purchased by Christ? Okay. Stephen, go on to the next one, please. The producing faith. 
by the Spirit produces faith in us. Now, here's the problem, you see. Um, who is it? Was it George Michael and Wham? You've got to have faith. And this idea, you've just got to have faith. Again, if you are not a Christian, or if you are a Christian, you're trying to explain this to your non-Christian friends. One of the problems is that when you say to people, you've got to have faith, it's as though we're implying that people can work up faith within themselves. But you can't. Ephesians 2 tells us that faith is the gift of God. And in a sense, when your non-Christian friend says, I don't have faith and I can have faith, in one sense, what they're saying is correct. Faith is not blind. It is not wishful thinking. And I'm going to give here a definition of faith that comes from uh, the Puritan. Again, I've been using a lot Thomas Watson. Three things. This is what real biblical saving faith is. First of all, it's self-renunciation. In other words, faith is not relying on ourselves. In that sense, the first part of faith, if you think of it like a hand, the first part of faith is, you know, we've got our hands tightly gripped onto ourselves and onto our circumstances and onto our control, if you like, of our own life. The first part of faith is letting go. It is as though you... um, you're at the top of a building, and you're hanging out the window, the building is on fire, and the firemen are telling you, have faith, we've put a great big safety mat underneath it. You can fall the three stories, it doesn't matter. If you don't let go, you won't be saved. And faith, real biblical faith, is when you renounce yourself. and, And by that, we don't mean you deny that you exist and so on, but we're just simply saying that you stop trusting in yourself. You stop thinking you can work out your own salvation. You stop thinking that you can save yourself. The second thing is reliance. And that is, just as you let go of trust in yourself, you also grasp onto Jesus Christ. And again, let's take the analogy of... um, Let's say you're, you're in a boat, and the boat's beginning to sink, and you're wanting to hang on to that boat, and there's someone there who holds out their hand and says, no, hold my hand, take my hand. You've got to let go in order to take their hand, but when you do let go, of course, you've got to grasp hold of their hand. So, real faith is not just renouncing self-renunciation, it is also when you hold on to Jesus Christ when you lean on Christ. Now, that's difficult, and I'll tell you why it's difficult. Because the illustration that I use of uh, holding on to my hand, if you're needing a, uh, you know, a help up, you've got to let go of something, hold on the hand. We understand that. We can do that. But what does it mean to hold on to Jesus Christ, to understand who Jesus Christ is? How do we hold on to Jesus Christ? Well, I think it is, it is understanding who, it, it, who He is. It is listening to His call, and we'll see what that is in a moment. It is accepting what God says about Christ. It's kind of something that you don't experience beforehand. A trick that I've used in philosophy classes is to ask people to describe the taste of coffee. How do you describe the taste of coffee to someone who's never tasted coffee? You can't do that. 
it's, it's, it is actually impossible to do. I, well, I, I've tried it in lots and lots. No one's ever been able to do it yet. Maybe that's a challenge that you might be able to fulfill. The only way really to get over the taste of coffee is to get someone to drink the coffee. And it's the same with grasping and knowing and understanding Jesus Christ. Because the only way that, that you really grasp hold of who Jesus is is to start believing and trusting in Him and leaning on Him. Um, discovery camps. We do the discovery camps, and I don't think this has been done in, in Callum's time. I think maybe Emma Jane might have been. There's a song we sing in discovery camps called Lean on Me. It's not even a Christian song, but the kids absolutely love it. Lean on me when you're not strong. I'll be your friend. I'll help you carry on and so on. I actually like the song, and I'm quite happy for us to sing it in the camp. It's not a specifically Christian song, but I like it because for me, it's a very, very good description of what real faith is in this reliance. My reliance is built on Jesus Christ. The hymn says, my hope is built on nothing less but Jesus' blood and righteousness. Now, the third one in faith, the third aspect of faith is what we call appropriation. And that's, I was trying to think how the best way to describe that. If renunciation is letting go of yourself, and if reliance is holding on to Christ, appropriation, I'll give two illustrations of it. One is if you've got medicine, and the medicine is given to you, and let's say you've got sunburn and you've been given some kind of special cream or uh, Callum there clonked his eye on the way in here, you know, given some ice to put on his eye, whatever. It's when you take the medicine is no use to you unless you take it and you apply it to yourself. Another way of looking at it perhaps is this. Again, using your hand, someone takes out says, here, I was going to take mine, but I don't have it, takes out their wallet, and they want to give you wads of money. The wads of money are there. Until you put out your hand and you receive it from them, it's actually of no use to you. An appropriation in, in the sense of faith is letting go of yourself, leaning on Jesus Christ, but taking Christ and everything about Christ and applying it to ourselves and applying it to our lives. So, what the Spirit does, the Spirit produces this kind of faith within us. The Spirit enables us to renounce ourselves. The Holy Spirit works in us a miracle without which, Jesus says, we wouldn't even see the kingdom of God. The Spirit, there's this thing going on in, inside. And the second part of that question says, He unites us to Christ in effective calling. Okay, let's go on to that. This is the third one. You've got three questions tonight, I hope. Yep. Um, again, let me ask the question, and you can answer it. What is effective calling? Go on to the next one, please, Stephen. Two aspects to this. There's an outward call and an inward call. Effective calling. How does God call us? Now, when we were in our group, um, 
we were the children, we were the theologians group, we were discussing the Bible. And we were discussing different calls in the Bible. Uh, in particular, two spectacular ones, one of Samuel and one of Saul. Samuel was a boy lying in his bed, and he heard a voice, and I, I said to the children, what would you think if you heard a voice lying in your bed at night? And guys, what were your answers? Sean, what did you say? Callum or dad? You said it would be Callum or dad. Emma Jane? Me. Yeah, so it would be me. Because you just, you'd think Megan th said it would be your brother, wasn't that right? Your brother Donald. You hear a voice lying in bed. You think, okay, that's somebody who I know. And that's exactly what happened with Samuel. He went to Eli, and Eli said, oh, it must have been the wind or something. Go back to bed. Happened three times, and the third time, Eli said, you respond by saying, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And it really was God speaking to him. It was uh, a vocal voice that he could hear. Now, we had a bit of a discussion about whether God would still do that today. And we said, yes, of course he could, but it would be quite unusual. And it might be difficult for people to grasp what that would mean. So then the question comes, how does God actually call us? Most people would say, well, if I heard God call me from the sky, if I, then that would be fine, I would believe it. Actually, that probably isn't the case. Most of us probably wouldn't. So in this effective calling, there are two aspects to it. I hope we put them both up there. Yeah, the outward call and the inward call. The outward call is hearing the gospel in some way or other. In other words, what's happening is, instead of you hearing a voice, God is speaking to you through His Word. So you're here, or you just decide to come, and you go to a, a Christian event, or you're in a, a Bible study, or you're reading the Bible, or you're in church, and you're hearing a sermon, or whatever. It really is God speaking, and it is God calling you. Now, the trouble is, with an outward call, is that we can be deaf to it. And again, in our group, we talked about what that meant. So that your phone rings, and you look at your phone, and it tells you, you've got one of these things that says, so-and-so is calling. And you go, okay, not in. You could do that. Or, one of the examples we gave is you're a child playing on your PlayStation, and your mom shouts you that your food is ready, and you don't hear that. In other words, you're not responding. The call is not particularly strong. And what happens with the gospel is that you can hear the gospel many, many times. You can hear God calling you. You may even like what is being said, but you can refuse. I gave uh, uh, the illustration in terms of my own testimony, but I know that several times before that, I was conscious that God was calling, and I just blocked my ears. I didn't want to listen. What the inward call does is that's God giving us, you like, if you like, the ears to listen, God changing our hearts, God working grace. And there's a couple of examples I want to give from that. One is John Wesley. John Wesley uh, went into a, uh, I think it was a Lutheran meeting place in Aldersgate in London. What's that? A Moravian. A Moravian. Thank you. And it was, it, they were actually reading from Luther's commentary on Galatians. And as they read that, he sat there and he wrote, I felt my heart strangely warmed. 
Now, Wesley had read the Bible. Wesley had gone to many church services. Wesley had probably heard the gospel many times. But that one particular time, things just changed for him. Watson says that the outward call brings men to a profession of Christ, the inward to a possession of Christ. Now, for some people, like Wesley, like Paul, like Samuel, it's spectacular, it's dramatic, it's instant. For other people, it's a gradual thing. The way I'd put it is when Wesley talks about my heart being strangely warmed, there are some people who are as cold as ice, and then there's this explosion, if you like, of the Holy Spirit in their lives, and everything changes. But for other people, there's just a gradual thawing, a gradual change. But there's a change that goes on nonetheless. Okay, let's go on to the next one. Okay, what is this effective calling? How does it work? Now, these, I'm going to, and I want to go through these verses because this is really important because it's showing us how God works in our lives. First of all, it, effective calling, the catechism says, is the work of God's Spirit. Let's go to Acts chapter 10 and verse 44. Acts 10, verse 44. It says this, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. I know it's not enough even to teach the Bible. I know it's not enough even to preach the Bible. And it's not enough just to tell people the Bible. We need to do it, but it's not enough because what is needed is for God's Spirit to work. You see, we've got this strange situation in the church today in Britain where you've got people who say, we're really into the Word and into the ministry of the Word. And you've got other people who are saying, we're really into the Spirit and the ministry of the Spirit. And the two things are being set up as though they were different, as though they were separate, almost as though they were opposites. But the reality of the situation is this. If you have the ministry of the Word and you don't have the Spirit, it's not the ministry of the Word. The Holy Spirit inspired the Word. The Holy Spirit takes the Word. Uh, we read this morning in Peter about being born again by the Word. It's the Spirit who takes the Word. And the trouble is, you see, with Christians who say, well, we're really into the Spirit. Actually, what they're doing is, very often, they ignore the Word. What they're really saying is, yes, the Bible's nice, and there's a lot of nice thoughts in the Bible, and yes, it's good to study the Bible and so on, but we basically go to the Bible for examples, and then we, we apply it to what's happening today because God's speaking in his, through His Spirit through us today. And they're not really recognizing the unique place of the Scriptures, and I think, most of all, they're misunderstanding the work of the Holy Spirit. The greatest thing that the Holy Spirit ever does is to create in us a clean heart to make us receptive to the Word of Jesus Christ. It's very difficult in being someone in my situation uh, as a preacher and teacher of God's Word because I know that I, can't, I, I can do nothing. I know that supposing, which I'm not, but supposing I was the cleverest, most eloquent uh, speaker in the world, 
I can do nothing. The Baptist minister, C.H. Spurgeon, was converted not through some great preacher, but actually through a, a country parson in a church service where there were 12 people, and apparently the preacher was awful, just reading someone else's sermon and so on. But God's Spirit took hold of that and changed Spurgeon's life. The preaching of the Word requires God's Spirit to be at work. Acts 16, verse 14. This is with Paul speaking to the women at the the prayer meeting that they had down by the river. It says, one of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. It doesn't say she responded to Paul's message and she opened her heart. Or even she responded to Paul's message and then God opened her heart. What happened is that God opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Now, instantly, there are some people who don't like that at all because they're saying, well, this is God's initiative and this is what God does and so on, and surely we should be able to do something. Jesus put it very bluntly. He said to Nicodemus, you will not even see the kingdom of God unless you are born from above. And that's why we're in this wonderful and yet very frightening position. On the one hand, we're saying there's nothing that we can do. We can't convert anybody. But on the other hand, what we're saying is it's God that does it. And my belief is very simple, that it says in Isaiah that God's Word will not return to Him empty, but it will accomplish that for which it was sent, the purpose for which He sent it. And that's why I long for the work of God's Spirit, and I believe in the work of God's Spirit, and I believe that God takes His Word and applies it. And that's not just for me talking as a preacher. That's for those of you who are Christians, and you're sharing God's Word, and you're sharing your life uh, wherever you are. It was great to um, be at the, what do you call these things? Lunch bar. Lunch bar in in the bridge. Um, And it was quite funny because I shouldn't say this, but, well, I will say it anyway. There was two girls there who, the minute I started speaking, the, the absolute look of panic and stroke disgust on their faces, I thought, they're not going to last, and they didn't. They lasted about two minutes, and away they went. And, you know, I could see one or two of the Christians going, oh, that's a shame. I said, well, yes, it is. It is a shame in some ways. But we just pray that God's Word would work. And I thought it was wonderful that uh, when I saw... Um, to see you doing their sports stuff out there, and then I uh, heard that the, the atheism discussion went really well. In fact, I, thought, I, actually, I actually thought this was lovely. Um, apparently, without intending to do so, the atheist society all turned up dressed in black. They didn't mean to, they just happened to all be dressed in black. And all the Christians were there were incredibly colorful. Now, there's an analogy in there somewhere, and there's an illustration in there somewhere. But There are people who would be listening to that going, what? Religious nutters? What's all this about? No one believes in God, and so on and so on. There isn't a single one of those three guys who are speaking. It was Mark and and John and Andy. Nothing that they said would convince anyone. But God is able to take His people using His Word, speaking His Word, talking about Him, to call people to him. I felt my heart strangely warm. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. And by the way, that's why prayer is just so vital, and that's why prayer isn't 
prayer for the work. Prayer is the work because nothing's going to happen without God's Spirit being at work. And what does Jesus say? We call upon Him. We ask for the Spirit. Second thing is, this effectual calling is when God's Spirit comes and convinces us of our sin and misery. John 16 and verse 8. When He comes, He will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. In regard to sin, because men do not believe in Me. In regard to righteousness, because I'm going to the Father where you can see Me no longer. And in regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. What the Spirit does there is those three things, the, the convicting the world of guilt in regard to sin... The Spirit convicts people that without Jesus Christ, they are guilty and lost. In regard to righteousness, because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer, the Spirit convicts people that righteousness can only be found in Jesus Christ. And it's only the Spirit who can do that because we don't have the physical Jesus here with us. But He sends something better, if you like. He sent the Holy Spirit. And in regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned, and that is the Spirit basically convincing and convicting people that you're finished, that God is judge, that God is king, that God is sovereign. So, God's Spirit needs to convince us of our sin and misery. That's part of the effectual calling. Um, And again, we have to be careful here. We have to realize it's the work of God's Spirit. That's why a Christian going around, if you really, really think, I would really advise, if, if anyone was here on this campus and you wanted to walk around tomorrow with a banner or one of these sandwich boards that says, um, you're all sinners and you're all going to hell, it's not the most effective form of evangelism. Why? People say, well, it's the Word of God. and They may have verses and so on. Because what's happening, it's a bit like a preacher who wants to convince people that they're sinners. I mean, what's the point? You just stand and yell at people, you're sinners, you're sinners, you're sinners. How does that convict people? It's only the Spirit who can convict. It doesn't mean that we don't teach God's Word. Of course we teach God's Word. But there's this bizarre form of evangelism where there are people who say, yes, well, God the Spirit converts people, but first of all, we've got to make them miserable. Actually, we don't have to make them miserable at all. That's the work of the Spirit. And incidentally, when you get a wee bit upset about your non-Christian friends who begin to get antagonistic or begin to get upset about your Christian faith, don't get upset at that. Be, be absolutely delighted. The worst situation is when they're quite happy in their unbelief. But when they're unhappy, that's a good sign. And it may be as well that sometimes, maybe there's someone here, sometimes I meet people and they're just saying, oh, I'm, this is doing my head in, I'm... I'm so discouraged. I'm so depressed about this. I just, I want to give up. I remember one man saying to me, I want to give up on all this Christianity, but I just can't keep away from it. And to me, that was a great sign because that was God the Spirit working in someone's life. Third thing, the Spirit enlightens our minds in the knowledge of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. This is a great um, aspect. I'll not read all of it, Uh, Let's read from verse 9. No eye has seen, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love Him, but God has revealed it to us by His Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. We've not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. 
This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from God for their foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual man makes judgments about all things, but he he himself is not subject to any man's judgment. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. The Spirit enlightens our minds in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. There is a great thing that happens when God's Spirit works in your life, when you're hearing God's Word, when you're beginning to sense God's people and and, and enjoy Christian fellowship, and something's going on and you're not quite sure, and your thought processes are changing. Are you being brainwashed? No. But what's happening is you are beginning to think the thoughts of God which is just a most incredible idea. It's a most incredible concept. We have the mind of Christ. He enlightens our minds in the knowledge of Christ. You see, it's quite ironic that there are people who say that they are enlightenment people, but they are completely blind to the glory and beauty of Jesus Christ. When you see it, you think, how can I have been so blind? The Spirit needs to enlighten our minds. Then He renews our wills. That's the fourth thing. Ezekiel 36, verse 26. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. There is something awesome that occurs when you become a Christian. Something that really, really... Um, it actually can be quite disturbing. You find your affections changing. I remember a girl who, she um, came to see me because the Spirit was at work in her life. And she said, David, I'm interested in becoming a Christian, but I, I absolutely, I love dancing and clubbing. And I said, "Uh uh-huh. So, she said, well, if I was to become a Christian, I don't think I could give up dancing and clubbing. And I said, okay, well, first of all, you have to stop thinking about being a Christian in terms of what you're giving up. But she said, I just love it so much. And I said, you know something? I'll tell you what will happen is when you become a Christian, that your affections will change. And what you love now will fade into comparison with what the, the affections again. She just laughed and said, that's impossible. That will never, ever happen. Well, when she became a Christian, that did happen. The whole perspective changes. Everything changes. So, it's not as though you say, right, I'm going to stop doing these things in order to become a Christian. What you find is as you, as you love Jesus Christ, things change. Jonathan Edwards, the American theologian, he spoke about the expulsive power of a new affection. That it's not enough. If, you, if you're somebody who says, right, I'm going to be a Christian, so I'm, uh, I'm going to stop taking drugs, I'm going to stop doing this, I'm going to stop doing that, and then eventually, you know, I can, I can be a Christian. That's not how it works, because Jesus put it this way. He said, you can drive out one demon, but if you leave the house empty, seven demons will come back in. You've really got to replace that with something else. And that's this, this whole idea of the new heart being given to you, new spirit being put in. 
That's what effective calling is. The last is it persuades and enables us to embrace Christ. Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5. If you, if you can tonight, read the whole of Ephesians 2 because it deals with this subject. Because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. It's not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. God made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. Some Christians get very, very disturbed and depressed and discouraged because they come to realize just how spiritually dead their non-Christian members of their family, their non-Christian friends, their non-Christian classmates, their non-Christian workmates are. And they think, before they were thinking, I can persuade them they have some spiritual interest. They're seeking God. And then they just realize, no, they're not. They're spiritually dead. They're dead. They're spiritually dead. But this is what effective calling is. It's when the Holy Spirit persuades and enables us to embrace Christ. Now, that is what it is. Paul says, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. So, Christ's call is both outward when He calls to us through His Word, and it's inward as that Word is taken by the Spirit and applied to our lives, and our hearts are changed, and we hear the voice of Jesus saying, come unto me and rest, and, and we respond in that. Now, I want to give, uh, if you go on to the, the last slide here, I want to give three, what Watson calls three uses of what this teaching means. How do we apply this teaching? First of all, go to Philippians 1 and verse 12. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you to will and to act according to His good purpose. If you are a Christian, then it is important that you work out your salvation or work out your calling. What does it mean? How does it apply? What's going on in your life? It's God who's working in you to will and to act according to His good purpose. Second is, you live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Ephesians 4.1, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. If Jesus has called you, if you are a Christian and Jesus has called you, it is the most incredible and wonderful thing possible. You will never be given a greater gift. We were, you know how we say it, we're, we're not worthy. Uh, in our group, we, see, our group was great. We managed to get on to marriage. And we were, t we were actually talking about marriage contracts for 12-year-olds. But um, we managed to talk about marriage. And, and one of the things that we were talking about was Supposing you're somebody who feels, supposing you're a young lady who feels that you're pretty worthless and no one's going to be interested in you and your self-esteem is really low and you feel that you're ugly and you, you have all these issues. And then along comes this guy who's just the Brad Pitt of Dundee, if that's possible, who's just, you know, everyone adores him. He's witty, he's intelligent, he's good-looking, charming, kind, compassionate, wonderful Christian, could take his pick of any girl at all. 
And for those guys who are smiling and thinking that's me, no, it's not. You're, honestly, you've got some brass necks, some of you. <laughs> You're just sitting there going, that's me. <laughs> honestly, go look in a mirror. No. <laughs> but imagine, imagine the scenario if Mr. Hunk comes to you and says, I want you. I, I want you. I, I, I love you. I want you to be my wife. I, I, I want you to take my name. You're going to find that quite hard to believe. But I tell you this, if it happens, you go ahead with it. There's a, a, a love, and it, it, it's just, in a sense, it does so much for you. Now, you multiply that a million times, and you've got what it's like to be called by Jesus Christ. There are other people in this world who are cleverer than you. There are other people in this world who could be more effective in certain types of ministry than you. There are other people who are wealthier than you, but not many rich, not many of noble birth were called, says Paul to the Corinthians. But you were called. You, the slaves. You, the despised of this world. You were called. You were called by the greatest possible person to the greatest possible thing. And that comes back. I'm accepted. I'm accepted. I've been called. Now, you see, the important thing there is to realize your calling. It's not like being picked for a team. If you're picked to play for Scotland, that's not a good example. Um, If you're picked for the British Olympic team, it's because you're the best. But if you're called by Jesus Christ, it's not because you're the best. If you're called by Jesus Christ, it's because of His love and what He has done. And the motivation, therefore, is to live a life worthy of the calling we have received. Thirdly, we are to make our calling and election sure. And the last bit we look at is in 2 Peter uh, chapter 1. And I'm going to read from verse 3. So follow along with me. We'll read to verse 11, and you'll see how this idea of calling becomes so important. We receive a faith that's really precious, and this this is what Peter says, God's divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. He called us by His glory and goodness, nothing else. Through these, He has given us His very great and precious promises so that through them, you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. So there's the foundation. God calls you. God gives everything. God gives us fantastic promises. We're standing on these promises. And He does that so that we can participate in God and we can escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Now, that doesn't mean we do nothing because verse 5 says, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive, unproductive in your knowledge of Je- our Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone does not have them, he is short-sighted and blind and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins." Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fall, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
Now, if you're a Christian, please understand this. You add to your faith goodness, to goodness knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, to brotherly kindness love, not because you want to be accepted by God, not because you want to receive the promises, not because even you want to escape the corruption in the world. You add these things because you have been accepted by God, because you have been given the promises, because you are participating in the divine nature, and you have escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. And the reason you add these things on is not so that you can be accepted, but so that you would be fruitful and productive in your life as a Christian, seeking to tell others about Jesus Christ, and that you would be assured in your own calling. You back off as a Christian, you go cold as a Christian, you backslide as a Christian, then the whole question starts coming in, am I really cold, is this, and so on. But you follow Jesus Christ. Christ, I'm not saying you never have any doubts, but you will find generally and increasingly that Christ more and more and more reaffirms what He has called you to. May God bless His Word. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for Your Word. Thank You that You call us to follow You. We pray that You would do so. We pray that there would be a powerful and effectual calling of each person here, and not only of us, but of our friends and our families. Lord, we believe that You have many people yet in this city. We can't convert a single person. We can't persuade anyone. We can't convince anyone, but Your Spirit can. And Lord, as You've called us, we pray that You would call many others, even through us, for the glory of Your Son. Amen.